0: Which is very well written and very descriptive and everything, but like I read through it, and all of a sudden it was like, Oh, now she's a person, right, yeah,
1: it's all kind of the the facade is gone,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, she was very instrumental for a long time <laughs> as as a youth, as a young man, oh yes, yes, uh, but I did like I ordered it off eBay. You know, when you still like communicated through email off of eBay and everything and got it and sent a message back saying, hey, I don't know if this is you or your manager or whatever, but I just want to say I read your book and, you know, I was very impressed. I thought it was a very well done presentation, like as a book, it was good Yeah. and got an email back saying, oh, this is me. Thank you. That's very sweet. As some old 500 pound I, w- Nasty guy. But apparently she's got a business degree in everything. I mean, like, she's... And there's a wrestling connection with Foley, too. How so? Oh, he. Uh, the, well, one, he was a fan of hers back in the day, but has since used the like their like, social friends now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did not know that. No, yeah, it's all good for Mick Foley. Yeah. Let's start the show. For those who do not know...
1: The biggest wrestling spectacular... Names from all over the country. Former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham. Florida Promotion. Vern Gagnon. Superstar Billy Graham. Road Warriors. Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. Bill Watts. Jerry Jarrett.
0: Dory Funk, Harley Race. uh, Nick
1: Bockwinkle. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations brought to you exclusively at Onegimmickworld.com. I am your co-host Jay Gilkey, and I am sitting here with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent. That ranges from Lenny Lane all the way to Boogie Woogie, Jimmy Valiant. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications as well as the owner of a degree in microbiology. With 20 years of experience, he is a true renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the one, the only, the incomparable Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Derek, how are
0: you? I'm fine, and I'm excited about our show today. Another great one. Absolutely. Uh, doing another episode of Viewer Mail, which yes. I always call back to the early days of David Letterman. Now- I like these because I can only do so much prep for them, and everything else is like, what do you know? Right. Exactly. So that's and that's what makes it fun. To, I'm looking forward to us doing that live episode. Yes. So that I can just make Oh, no, make it's, this, and it's coming, ladies
1: and gentlemen. We're, <gasps> uh, I should probably just say gentlemen. So excited. <laughs> right. <Hey. laughs> is there a lady? I mean- Ladies give a I shout out. I know at least 2 that
0: have listened. Oh, that's good. Or are, you know, 9 people that have listened.
1: Still, throwing it out there once again. Anyone that's been to studio wrestling? Yes, had please. their arm broken by Mr. Saido? Oh. Or Oh jeez. <laughs> just kidding. No. Was that deep No, cut? I do want to hear about I that. I know. I'm, well, the look on your face was <laughs> great. Anybody
0: who's had their arm broken by a professional wrestler. Yes, please. Anyone I want to hear about yes,
1: it. That would be excellent. Um, Rod
0: Luck, is he still alive?
1: I don't know. That's a good question. Oh, that'd be uh, good. I have to start it off. So I, I do my research for the show. I yes. try my best to make sure, you know, study the intro, study, uh, well, you know, facts about you, things that we know. And for weeks it's now, creepy. months now, we've been doing the show and, and loving it. And Kyle and I were going through and trying to find um, people that you've wrestled with, because you're humble. I think you're a humble man. And we've asked you, who have you wrestled, you know, and you're, you're very, uh, oh, you know, m- maybe this guy, this guy, yeah. But you don't really go out of your way to uh, show off or brag about some of the men you've been in the ring
0: with. Uh, I don't remember who I've been in the ring well, with. Well, that's the I other mean, thing. I really, I, I'm trying I only, to give you the benefit of the doubt Sorry, here I one. really only record uh, my towns and paydays. I don't so, really record...
1: When points. I'm looking up online and I it's see it's always that, very depressing. Well,
0: every, every yeah, the, after I take that last wrestling date in December, I'll yes. try and add up for the year and then just cry quietly to myself for a week or two.
1: Well, so I'm looking up stuff the other day and I have to text you <coughs> because there I see that you wrestled Boogie Woogie. Yes, we do all these goddamn podcasts. We've talked about him numerous times. Street People USA. Big Mama, all the great stuff we've done all that he's come up numerous times. Not once have you ever mentioned that you worked with him. And so I'm texting you going,
0: "Is this true? Did you really work him?" You're like, "Uh, oh yeah, that's right. I did." I uh, worked him with uh tag team with Mike Mercury against him and Tony Leone in the Racine County Community Center, which is like a big fancy building downtown yeah. with balconies and stuff like that. And uh learned three spots from that match that I still use that Boogie just like had in his back pocket. Really? Incidentally, uh, he tagged with Tony Leone, who's a Tom Stone-level guy from this area, who proceeded to go over the match 50 times, had horrible garlic breath, and laughed at the jokes in the match every time he went through the match. Really? Yeah. It was kind of like, okay, I got it. Oh, and we came out to uh, Big City Nights from the Scorpions at Excellent. Day, which I like um, because I thought it was going to be Billion Dollar Babies, which I was... More excited about sure. but no it was big city nights. Um
1: Tony Leone. Yes. Foreshadowing.
0: Soon to now be part of the intro
1: on one of our shows oh, in
0: the future. Great.
1: <laughs> well, I mean
0: We I'm have just, done Kenny J. Did you do uh uh Jake Milliman? Yeah, yeah, we've done Absolutely. Jake Milliman. Yeah, so oh uh incidentally Jake Milliman in poor health. Hope he's doing Oh well. really? Yeah. So oh well our, sorry our thoughts that's too and prayers out to you. But.
1: No, not at all. Uh thoughts and prayers out to Jake Milliman. I saw him once in a Kmart in Hales Corners. Right on. Yeah, nice guy. I think he was buying paint. Nice guy. Yeah, he was uh, um pretty pretty shocking to see. What <laughs> was well, it? Wasn't, you know, I guess it wasn't really shocking to see him in a Kmart shopping, but he had the um, train conductor hat on. Yes, that he and wore that great beard. So that was pretty good. So uh, speaking of being pretty good, this is one of our favorites: is actually getting together and talking about. Uh, I'm sorry,
0: I don't remember everybody I wrestle, Jay.
1: <laughs> well. Now you're just big timing. Yeah, well. I'm yeah. oh, sorry, sorry, I don't remember any of these uh, so quote-unquote vast, names. Vast. Yes, this vast, this vast list of names I've wrestled in my day.
0: Hey, just the lights look the same in every ceiling, it, you know. So yeah, every here. every building just no. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. That one's burned out.
1: So, um, today's viewer mail, listener questions. Yes. Call it what you will, um, and uh, we got a bunch in. A lot of great ones, kind of all over the board. Uh, was thinking about good. how to handle this, but I, I think we're just going to kind of jump in. I'm going to throw you one feed. Luckily, we'll get uh, maybe there'll be a segue into another one. If not, if it uh, the, the information peters out, you've given us as much as you know, we'll just jump on to the next one and go from sure. there. Sure. Does that sound good? Sure. Um, we'll start out right off the bat. One of the first ones we got from a while ago uh, from one of our listeners uh, talking about the Ribera Steakhouse jacket. Yes. Um, Seen it. All these years. In fact, just the other day, watched the Doug Gilbert shooting on Jerry Lawler. <laughs> yep. I, was it USWA? Yes. Uh, USWA where he uh, says Don't say it. some pretty questionable things about Jerry Lawler and yes. Randy Hales, I believe, yes. too. Yes, yes. He goes off on both Randy, uh, Randy Hales and Jerry Lawler. Have you ever seen that, Kyle? Kyle's... Not... Check it out. And it's very inflammatory. <laughs> yes. Uh, definitely worth checking out. But Doug Gilbert... Wearing his Ribera, Ribera jacket. His Ribera,
0: um, jacket.
1: Uh, describe the Ribera jacket to us first. Oh,
0: it's uh, a satin jacket. On the back it uh, has Ribera Steakhouse with a highly stylized, is it an ox or a steer skull? Something like with a steer, I would yeah, say. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think um, I was for, first introduced to it when uh, Steve Williams would wear it to the ring. Sure. Uh, which would make sense, but it, it's all yours. The floor is yours. Okay. Tell us about
0: uh, it. Ribera Steakhouse is a restaurant in Japan. That was, I'm not sure if they were tied into the uh, wrestling promotions over there. I would imagine, and please don't kill me in the middle of the night. I would suspect that they are somehow tied to wrestling through the Yakuza. Because that's the way most business is done over there. Sure, Um, But they were well known in that. You could not buy the Ribera Steakhouse jacket. It had to be given to you by the owner of the restaurant. Okay. Now, from what I understand, talking to my good friend Ace Steele, who's gone over there, uh, the you would go in there and all of a sudden you'd see your picture on the wall with all of these other wrestlers and then you'd be friendly. And if he liked you or if you were there a couple times, he would give you your jacket and it was a big deal to receive a jacket from, from a oh, bear. Cool, yeah. So that was a, a thing of status over here in the States. Cause that meant you had been to Japan and you had been there enough that you were over and he could do all of this. But what we found out later is that the owner would work with the promotions and find out who was coming over on the next tour. Okay. And he would replace all the pictures on the wall with who was coming over on the next tour. So they would come in and think that their picture had been up all of this time in <laughs> Japan, but no, he was just uh, redoing all of the pictures on the wall. So it was a work. So it was a work, but he, you know, he was over with the wrestlers and uh, ribera being a steakhouse um for the longest time steak was a big delicacy in japan because they don't have the acreage to feed livestock so right. everything would have to be you know shipped in and everything and a lot of the guys especially the green or the gaijin that would go over there um need needed to eat all of that that protein in order right. to maintain their physiques and stuff like that
1: so that was the place that they would go to now everybody i mean i i A lot of people have them is it still something kind of viewed as being sacred in the business or has it become no it's
0: become very watered down because as i understand it the atmosphere about going to japan has kind of fallen down a little bit in stature it was it was originally when there was the two offices over there it was one of the most plum jobs over there but then you know a dozen offices opened up in tokyo alone and then uh from what i understand some Smaller time workers have ruined it by paying their own ticket to get over to Japan. Oh, sure. As opposed to the promotions flying you over, so now promotions are seeing, oh, these guys are going to pay their own ticket. Now that becomes a prerequisite to getting booked over there. Right. You know, like everything, it's it's been kind of like watered down over the years. Plus, you've got people wanting to have the jacket without having the prestige of being in Japan. So there's knockoffs, and you know, oh,
1: there are knockoffs out there. Oh, I'm.
0: Come on. I don't know. You, you can do anything with computers, man. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, I mean, there's, it's more than I will ever get, but um, you know, it, it's fallen down in stature somewhat, but it's still ostensibly supposed to mean that you've been to Japan and right. you've been there in a, a sacred position. Okay, gotcha. Now, um, I'm guessing... <clears throat> uh, the gimmick with the picture is one thing I want to sure. add. A uh, friend of mine that used to wrestle in the Chicago area that's out of Michigan trained with the Al Snow School and went down there, and his first time going to the school, he saw all of these photos on the wall, and they were all signed, hey, Al, thanks for the help, and you know from all of these workers and everything, and he was so amazed that Al Snow had helped train all of these wrestlers. So he'd gone there for a while, and Al Snow was talking to him, and he said, oh, Al, I was you know so impressed by this. That's one of the things that made me choose his school. He just said, Martin, go over there and look at the writing on all of those pictures. Al Snow had autographed all of those pictures <laughs> cool. to make it look like it's like damn, just levels of the work. That's sure, incredible. no, that's
1: uh, that is great.
0: I love that little one.
1: So if I were to go to Japan and I were to go to the steakhouse, um, at, at this point merchandising, they must be selling T-shirts, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I believe you can buy them now. Yeah, or, and it, like the it could jackets have
1: been... too. Could you buy that? You could probably buy the jacket. Yeah,
0: well. I'm sure they like money, but I, right. I'm. I think it was one of those deals where the channels didn't exist for anybody to buy them from Japan. So I don't know if right. I don't know if you could buy them but just didn't have any avenue to get them or knew it existed right. or if it was just something. But it was like the wrestlers wouldn't buy them, the wrestlers were given the right. they were given to them So them. I'm sure, sure that they're available for sale because, you know, yeah, again, they like money. But
1: have you ever been in a locker room with someone wearing a Ribera coat?
0: no but i have been in a locker room with somebody wearing a custom-made track suit oh really yeah uh, which i which i think is neat but uh i don't want to get into who it was or where it was sure. but seeing it in that venue both excited and depressed me at the same time right because it was kind of like okay um if you feel the need to big league here that's fine right yeah no i could i could see that i um... but it was cool that it exists because i don't know like i would wear the jacket with a, you know, a pair of jeans. Sure. You know, right.
1: Yeah, no, it's cool. And of course it's one of those things where it's almost like forbidden fruit. Yeah. In the sense that if I went to Japan, I wouldn't get anything because I wouldn't.
0: Right. Right. Uh, it's it's kind of, If
1: it's there, I'd still be like, Oh, that's great. But I, you know, I could never, but
0: it would kind of be like a reproduction of that Freddie Mercury, one piece jumpsuit from right. the Bohemian Rhapsody video. It's something I would like to own and maybe see myself in a mirror, but I don't know where I would wear it out of the house. Right.
1: Um, side note sorry kind of I, just, both I these, like Freddie Mercury well no nothing wrong with that um, side note going back to the Al Snow thing something that I felt wrong about <laughs> back in the mid 90s I bought one of the job squad t-shirts sure and I felt wrong like I bought it and I thought that's cool and it was before it really really took off right and I felt I really felt wrong about it because i felt like i shouldn't have been wearing it because i wasn't a wrestler i wasn't in the business or anything Fair like enough. that so i guess that same feeling that i, I had because I, I wore it a couple times i think i wore it to like a pay-per-view one right or something uh but after that then i was just kind of like you know what i don't know I'm like
0: just... i had a i had a sabu t-shirt that i was so proud of and then i broke in and started training and like wore it to training twice before i found it's like oh i shouldn't be wearing this here i get it why not Oh, because it's not, it's Markish. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, for just, That's, just to go right to it, it's Well, we it's said mark-ish. that the other
1: week when we were at that
0: show together,
1: right. and there's a guy in the ring wearing like a Jeff Hardy t-shirt, and I'm like, yeah, just a, just wear a regular t-shirt, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're going to guy.
0: yeah, but if you're going to wear something, it should be a product, you know, it should, it, it, you could wear your t-shirt. Sure. But, you know, you shouldn't be there to put over somebody, you know, somebody right. else. Otherwise, you're just showing... I just want to be like this person as opposed to I want to be my own thing. Right. Like you should never want to be the next anything. You should want to be the first something. Right.
1: Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I, uh, I've, I have no shame. I wear well, our product all the time. Thank so. you. Thank you for your money. Just going to say well, I, for, for what uh, it's worth. Right
0: now, I just want to say as we're talking, I am wearing a shirt of the 70s band Sweet. Sweet, which is suite. great. So like again one thing five people in a general population will pick out but those five people will come up and go yeah and oh my, another story yes. since we're just rambling here yes i was uh running one time on the uh oak leaf trail in lovely bayview wisconsin along the along the lake there sometimes i channel that i'm the crusher back in 1957 but I was walking and I saw a gentleman, or I was running, I saw a gentleman walking his dog and he was wearing a t-shirt, which is a reproduction of the Vashans versus Crusher and Bruiser oh, cool. in the cage at Soldier Field, which I owned the poster of, but yes. he had it on a t-shirt. And as I'm walking up, I slowed down my my cadence enough to look at him and say, hey, nice t-shirt. And he stopped and looked at me and just said, thank you. That like was that. And and in my mind, you know, because your mind kind of goes as you're running. In my mind, I'm wondering like, okay, his wife is at home and she has told him to throw out this t-shirt because it's just silly and everything. But he went home from walking his dog and he's like, guess what, honey? Somebody recognized my t-shirt. And he's going to hold on to that shirt for another three to six years just because somebody pointed it out. So.
1: Speaking of Wisconsin, kind of bringing things around here, uh, we had someone that actually uh, wrote in a question about Wisconsin, uh, very topical regionally here. Uh, And I'm just going to read it directly from Facebook for what this person asked us. And it said, from what I can discern, from online match results, Pafo's ICW ran in Milwaukee and Oshkosh in the early 1980s. They were there for at least a couple of shows. Do you know why were there any other outlaw promotions that ran in Wisconsin?
0: That is the question. And it's from Jay Doherty, by the way. Hi, Jay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Um, Let me me break that down. As far as outlaw promotions that have run in Wisconsin, uh, yes, there have been numerous uh, small-time outfits that have run. There was a small group that actually came out of Michigan that came around the horn and ran in the Beloit and Janesville area. Now, Beloit had a building there called Waverly Beach, okay. which was a large auditorium that could hold wrestling. That is where, that was a northern spot on the Fred Kohler Chicago circuit, and people such as Gary Hart and Angelo Paffo actually had their first matches there. So that existed until... Uh, late seventies, early eighties, when it was finally torn down. So there was always that building that was available. There's also another group that ran in the Monroe area, which I believe came out of Chicago. Sure. So I believe at every time, uh, you know, as long as anybody had a place to run, you know, somebody could come and set up a ring. Right. So there are tales of these shows. Uh, my father in Janesville told me at a local roller rink there was a small time outfit that came up. And he said the big thing about that was the two people that wrestled the front match became the referees for the rest of the night. Oh, really? You know, but that wasn't an AWA. That was, he just said, oh, that's just a small time, you know, no name group. Like, you know, he didn't know indies or anything like that. It was just wrestling that happened. So there were always these areas, plus, especially in the Milwaukee area. Um, the Caesar Pabones and those uh, Armando Rodriguez and like those those lower right. level guys uh, always ran out of uh, Fed Hall, okay, Federation yeah, Federation Hall. Right. So there there were always these smaller groups that were around Wisconsin all the time. Now this ICW show that he's asking about, I don't think that was promoted under the ICW name. I think that was actually under. Uh, I believe that was under Al Patterson's Superstars of Wrestling. Right Now, uh, this, this show happened. They ran the Mecca. They were somehow able to get a date there, so I'm not sure how that happened. But because another local worker uh, was on those shows told me the the backstory that nobody got paid at the show, and they actually went over to the promoter's house looking for their money, didn't get their money, so they... Uh, either slashed his tires or overturned his car, you know, waiting sure. to get their money until they finally got some cash out of this guy who was allegedly paid from the promoter's wife. Okay. But that show did have Randy Savage, Landy Pafo. I believe Bob Orton Jr. was between, uh, he was an outlaw for a while, which yep. is something I've always wanted to dig into. Like, how did he get on the outs? Right, right. Um, because he was actually a policeman, you know, and could shoot on people and stuff like that. So yeah. I was surprised that he was there. And Rip Rogers, and then it was accentuated by local local, uh, local talent here. So they ran Milwaukee and then ran Oshkosh. But I don't think, uh, there weren't very many shows, like sure. like one or two that were run. Now, for the ICW, there was Pafo's ICW, but there was also another subgroup that was, like, run by Phil Golden, which I think was called All Championship Wrestling or something like that. Okay. That's where uh, local personalities such as Ed Schumann worked as Sydney oh, yeah. Bacabella. Uh, incidentally, like you always heard these stories that ed schumann worked with uh jimmy valiant and all of right. this other stuff and it was just kind of like oh okay you know you didn't really know what to believe but then on his untimely passing i went to his his service and everything and sure enough there were pictures like nope there he is with the valiant brothers and everything it's like How oh cool, my god right? everything ed schumann said was real right the like, guy did two fucking tours with menudo for christ's <laughs> sakes just ask him it's like, yeah yeah okay I'm sorry, just local no, talent. No, that's great. But yeah, there was, uh, there was definitely a show that did use some ICW talent, but I think that was more, instead of an ICW show, there was a carload of guys that drove up sure. you know, from that area and did the shows and had problems with the promoter and then went back to whatever. How were turnouts? Do you know? Uh, no, I do not i always that would interest me
1: to find I, out. It, like, it wasn't
0: it, it wasn't spectacular because they wouldn't have had TV to. Right. It, it would have just been print advertising and radio advertising. Right, so I don't I don't think it was stellar because they didn't come back. Right, <laughs> right, no, sure. Which is a, you know an interesting thing like that. That's
1: quite a loop. Too. I mean, uh, if Paffo's was bringing his group up from where they were, I mean, I guess right. Seems...
0: But they also worked uh, like Savage and Paffo and those guys all worked out in the Maritimes and like yeah, you know. So it was they went to the the fringe groups. You know, you had to drive where the money was. But again, I'll bet you it was like one carload or one van load of guys. That right, up and they there. just did their thing. Yeah, right on.
1: No, that was a, a fantastic question. Um, Leading into another question. Sure kind of this one has nothing to do with that one, but we'll uh, go go into it. We had someone uh, ask about Magnum TA. <laughs> and uh, basically in asking about Magnum TA, asking like, what was the big deal about Magnum? Uh, what, what, why was he so over? What was his, his magic? What did you feel like his magic was?
0: Well, his magic presented to the people was he was, you know, a tough guy wrestler that you know, wasn't afraid to get down and dirty and like get into a fight. Sure. Backstage, uh kind of right guy, right time. He was that's who Dusty decided he was gonna tie the rocket ship to and that's why he got pushed. Um his his initial his initial run in world championship wrestling or the, the Crockett or the TBS era was he would beat people with the belly to belly suplex right. in 10 seconds. seconds. Yeah, yeah. Just boom, boom, like boom. out of nowhere type. Thing. And that was just a way to get him over and establish him as, you know, such a force and everything right. like that. And, you know, he had the mullet as was the fashion at the time. And, you know, it he still was, does. Well, I mean, de- yeah, it's, it's kind of scary now. But I mean, he was, you know, okay enough looking guy and still, but he wasn't pretty enough to threaten, you know, like t- that was a problem with Terry Taylor is that sure. he was pretty, but guys would look at him and be like, ah, look at this pretty boy. But and I
1: don't work. know. I think I look at Magnum and I, 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 as a kid, I always thought he was great. I thought it was, yeah. I mean, to me, it seemed like a matter of time before they put the the heavyweight championship on him.
0: It just seemed, I mean, again, right. to, what and does that, a 12 year old know? But Right. And that's what he was being, you know, uh, groomed for. But yeah, he just came up, and he was especially to our our generation. He was presented that way so that we bought into the hype and got up there. So somebody coming in now just sees a guy that should probably shave his chest and get a haircut. But you're also looking at that with modern eyes, and you know you've got the knowledge of what the business is, and you know it's very different. It's very different perceiving him now as opposed to how you were allowed to perceive him back then. When you were a kid,
1: and you saw Magnum TA. This is kind of embarrassing to admit. Don't worry. Okay. Maybe not until about 10 years ago. (laughs) This is really dumb. I didn't make the connection between goddamn
0: Magnum PI and Magnum TA. Yes. Uh...
1: If I would have made that, the rumor I heard
0: was Andre the Giant was the one that thought of that. Really, because he was wrestling under the name Terry Allen. Right, exactly. And then that's when Andre said, "Hey, you look like Magnum T A. Maybe you should become Magnum T A.
1: You look like Magnum P I. Yeah, maybe you should call. Yeah, because I never once made that. I just I don't know why.
0: Well, okay, because in the A W A, when they were trying to get over Scott Hall, for a while he was Magnum Scott Hall. Was he he really the same look? Yeah. I didn't but then, know that even one. the after mags tore that apart. Like, come on, this is this. Look, it, they can change the channel and see the other guy. What are you thinking? Right, right. You know, yeah. That, that's just, after he was big.
1: I think that if I big Scott Hall when I wasn't stupid, if <laughs> <You're> <laughs> just gonna just gonna softball that one. Yeah, up Yeah, huh? that's right. Okay. Well, if I would have put two and two together back then, I think I would have been less into Magnum TA, uh-huh. knowing that there was a connection between.
0: More like, into Magnum Pi, yeah. Okay, so with Higgins. Um,
1: so when did when was uh, when was Magnum doing the uh, the Mr. Wrestling knee lift? Uh,
0: you're familiar with that whole? Yeah, yeah, thing, that was right? in the
1: UWF. That
0: was UWF. The, so or, that was, or, or, no, that that was actually technically Mid South.
1: So he did that in Mid South. They liked the look, and that's when he then came over to the Carolinas. Yes, right?
0: but okay. he was already uh, known in Florida. Okay, like he was. But was he in Florida,
1: Florida, or was he just Magnum when he got over to the Carolinas? I think
0: he was still Terry Allen in Florida. And then when he came over to the Carolinas, he became Magnum TA. No, but he was Magnum TA in the UWF, too. Was he? I suppose we could have researched this instead of just talking about it on the project. looking at each other. Yeah. (laughs) Confused.
1: So let's just say, yeah, he was Magnum TA in Florida. All right. But if you haven't seen the uh, Magnum TA slash Terry Allen training, was it with Wrestling 2? Yes.
0: Uh, With Wrestling 2 learning the secrets of the knee lift? Wrestling 2 splits the bag of grain with the knee lift awesome yes, yeah that's a great sure. that's that definitely a great one uh to check out as well i also like in a lot of the uwf train or mid-south or uwf training videos everybody's in that gym that looks like it's just put in somebody's den right which has got to be in somebody's house and all i can think of is imagine how that must smell in the rest of the house <laughs> right because right. you know they're not wiping that stuff yeah down. no yeah. it's uh there's a lot but of, like uh, bill watts had a Extra room, like ah, we're gonna throw all the weights in here.
1: Don't worry about the staff. Yeah, the, the floating around the mats
0: because everybody's working around with no shirts on. I know if I was at a gym where guys didn't have shirts on, I would just leave. Yeah, you know? Ab- Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, depending on how much I had to pay to get in. There you go. Yeah, so.
1: I mean it. It is something. I, I think that definitely. You know, like you said, it's just the way he was built up or that he was yeah. propped up magnum was just who it was and again you look back at how can you, you're looking at the i quit match you're looking at the best of seven you're looking at some of these great things that he did uh it's
0: I mean, good worker
1: yeah yeah um and promo wise slipped tripped up a few times i felt wasn't as strong yeah the but mic. he was okay wasn't great um We're, again we, we talked about the, that one yeah the i'll come on you promo uh <laughs>
0: like nobody had come on you before yep
1: which I still was that live? Do you think? No. And nobody caught that. or was it just a simpler time.
0: It was just a simpler time because then Oli, they Oli's like saying "Come on, mother!" the whole time. He's beating him up. Like, are, are you supposed to be saying "Mother Effer" or what? Just well, that was kind of just a cool got thing a thing in like, bizarre. Like,
1: they they said that unresolved in unresolved uh,
0: childhood issue, and that's why you uh, beat people up.
1: No, but that's what they would say in like black exploitation movies. Sure. Your mother. Yeah, because that's the worst impersonation. When I think when I think Superfly,
0: I think Oli Anderson.
1: Yeah, true. I I do. I would I would say that. So the hey,
0: brother, what's going on? Hey, you son of a bitch. Get over here. I'll break your arm. Hey, mother, let me check that wrist. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Twice around. Twice around. Too bad. All right, St. Holmes, you're out of here.
0: Some months after the long, treacherous deportations began, Mary Ezekian lost her husband Krikor to the horrors of the Armenian Genocide. Driven to madness, she would often attempt to flee the caves that she and her children hid in to escape detection from the Turkish guards. Her son Harry would wrap her long, thick hair tightly around his wrists as they slept in an attempt to keep his mother close by. One night, she managed to break free. Harry woke up to find her hair severed from around his wrists. After that night, he never saw her or his sister who disappeared in the chaos ever again. The burden of these traumatic experiences would have left anyone wrestling demons for the rest of their lives. Harry Ezekian, however, would go on to wrestle for the world championship title. The genocide survivor who, as an old man, recalled witnessing Turkish soldiers beheading Armenians like chickens, quote unquote, Sereptitiously won the title on April 24, 1936, the annual commemoration date of the Armenian Genocide, all while setting the precedent as one of the first true gimmick wrestlers with his much feared character, Ali Baba. He was nicknamed the Terrible Turk, Break 'em Neck Harry, the Crushing Kurd, and Ali Umed, but ultimately chose Ali Baba as his moniker. With a fez on his bullet shaved bald dome, Former Navy man, referred to as the homeliest and fiercest-looking individual in all of sports, was a success story both on and off the mat, headlining wrestling exhibitions across the country to large crowds and making cameos in several well-known Hollywood films. In addition to winning the titles of fleet champion in middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight divisions, he was also given the world champion Navy wrestler title at a match in Copenhagen, and was later honored at a White House reception in 1927 by President Calvin Coolidge. He would later be called the Navy's strongest man in an American pictorial magazine of the time. In 1932, after leaving the Navy and attempting to start his professional wrestling career, Ezekian came to Los Angeles where he found both love and fame. He married Alice Elizabeth Bagdoyan and made appearances in such films as Island of Lost Souls, and W.C. Field's great 1935 movie, The Man on the Flying Trapeze, in which he played Hukalaka meshohabab and grappled with Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson. Ezekian, with his menacing look and genuine strongman skills refined under an almost decade-long Navy career, would have been any promoter's dream. There's no question he was a superb athlete and a very powerful man, says Mike Chapman, an Iowa-based wrestling historian, That's one of the things promoters would look for, somebody who looked the part, and if they could actually fit the part, it would be better. These fellows really put on a show, they could really draw a crowd. It was at a much-anticipated match in Detroit, Michigan on April 24, 1936, in front of over 8,000 spectators, which put Alibaba, complete with Fez, mustache and frighteningly foreign appearance on the wrestling map forever. Ezekian's defeat of the Prussian-born Dick Shycat for the title of heavyweight world wrestling champion sent the press wild. The New York State Athletic Commission, which controlled much of the wrestling profession, did not recognize the winning and made Baba and Shycat duke it out on the mat again, this time in Madison Square Garden on May 5th. Baba won and was formally declared world champion. The Armenian assassin makes poor Shikot bleed in match, wrote the Pittsburgh Press. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette summarized Baba's weighing some 212 pounds, 190 pounds of which is said to be stored in his angry mustache. As author Scott Beekman writes in his book Ringside, A History of Professional Wrestling in America, Ali Baba's claim to the title can be viewed as the beginning of the gimmick wrestling era. In his colorful 32-year career, Baba managed to wrestle some 3,500 men, making up to $5,000 a week, during a time when the average person's salary was less than $2,000 a year. Sometime after the name Ali Baba had become well-known around the wrestling circuits, Ezekian and his first wife divorced. Ezekian took what money he had and bought an old farmhouse in Sultana, California, where he began tending to his citrus groves. Permanently planted in California's Central Valley, Ezekian soon became a local recognizable hero in more ways than one. Ezekian's grandson, Eric, remembers his strict daily regime. He would sunbathe after he'd ran five miles on the beach, done a thousand knee bends and 500 push-ups every day until he was in his 70s. His diet consisted of three cloves of garlic every day, parsley, as well as hot lemon juice. He would also treat himself to an entire tub of ice cream. He was frugal and bartered constantly, traits ingrained in him since the hardship he'd endured as a slave. I'd heard from my dad that even when he was in his 70s, he would go to dumpsters behind supermarkets and pull the fresh vegetables and take them home, added his grandson. And if he liked you, he'd call you a no good lousy punk, a title affectionately held by both his grandsons. Without any formal training, Ezekian soon turned his wrestling talents into a new career as a masseur, taking the strength that could render his opponents helpless and channeling it through hands that healed. First, only taking donations and never charging more than five dollars for a fix, he had customers coming all the way from Los Angeles to get their backs worked on in the massage parlor at his home. Before Ezekian died in 1981 from a massive stroke, He was remembered for being a genocide survivor who held no animosity towards the Turks. Beverly Rorell recalls speaking to him about the sensitive topic. He said it was a whole different generation now and that you can't carry hatred towards a whole group of people. In his honor, the Rorell family established a wrestling scholarship in Alibaba's name at Danuba High School in hopes of inspiring the next generation of wrestlers to carry on the profession. It was his faith, which Baba believed gave him the ability to survive throughout the bouts of despair, dexterity, and endurance in the match that became his life. God always had angels behind me, Baba said. That's what I believe.
1: Transition now from Magnum TA. Uh, let's talk about entrance music. Sure. Um, we had one of our uh, listeners write in about entrance music, and they had the question wanting well, to know about the history of entrance music. Who was the first? I think a lot of people claim to be the first person to use entrance music. Yes, yes. Uh, but it has been used for a very, very long time. Let fill us in on that one a little bit.
0: Yes, entrance music, of course, uh, became really big in the 80s until we had to start licensing everything and playing other stuff. Anyway, entrance music actually goes back like to the 30s. Everybody talks about Gorgeous George playing Pomp and Circumstance. Right. Uh, Gorgeous George stole the majority of his gimmick from a guy in the Cincinnati area Cincinnati area in the 30s called Lord Lansdowne, okay. who had a valet and the robes, and I don't know if he did the effeminate gimmick, but it was very much the presentation and the slow getting ready, uh, and he allegedly had you know, pomp and circumstance blown out at that time too. And George took the majority of the gimmick from him. Plus another guy that he grew up in Houston with called Sterling Dizzy Davis, who did the effeminate gimmick down in Mexico. Okay. And he would throw roses out and George asked him, Hey, could I, do you mind if I do this in the States? And he's like, ah, this shit will never get over in the States. And you know, (laughs) right. Then, then gorgeous George happened. Yeah. Um, which if you watch is, you know, an interesting presentation, but George was all about the the spectacle and I mean he could could actually wrestle. Was I don't know if he was a shooter, but could actually right, get could down, you own. know had had respect. But it was all more about the presentation and the bending the genders of the time and sure. uh, I recommend John Capuya's book on Gorgeous George, one of the best biographies I've ever written. Oh, okay. Um great great spot in that is when a young Robert Zimmerman is you know, playing a gig in a you know, a side hall, and Gorgeous George walks in because he's wrestling at that night and just looks at him, and they meet, and Robert Zimmerman claims that Gorgeous George looked at him and said, you're making it come alive, kid, and walked out of the room, <laughs> and that's what inspired Zimmerman to reinvent himself as Bob Dylan. Oh, wow. So I love that, but just that whole, you're making it come alive. That's pretty awesome. That's a great line. Yeah, just kind of like knighting the next generation.
1: And so, you know, I'm sure, again,
0: like you said. Oh, but anyway, I'm sorry, getting back to yeah. entrance music. So I, I'll go with uh, Lord Lansdowne, like in the 30s. But again, everybody is the first to do it. Right, right. Because whenever an old wrestler tells a story, the houses were always sold out. It was always popping. Sure. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they always had the belt. Right. <laughs> so
1: it would be interesting, though, to go back. What was that true, like that one, that first, like, quote unquote, rock and roll? Like what was the one that really put it over the edge, or what was the one that really pushed it? I'd always thought it was Freebirds.
0: Well, I mean, that's you're still kind of going in the modern era. Right. You also had the uh, the Stevens brothers, Don Stevens and Ray Stevens. Yeah. Um, going out to the they went as the Jones boys and they went out to that song. The whole town's talking about the Jones boys. You Did know, they really? Yeah, they would play that. You had to have buildings that had a PA right. in order to play this like that. But it was whatever they could arrange. And a lot of promoters are very old school and didn't like it because that's not wrestling, right? You know, there were there are stories of old promoters that didn't want guys wearing ring jackets because it's like we're not selling tailors here. We're selling wrestling. wrestlers, right? Right. Yeah. Like, eh, okay. You know, they
1: just don't see it. So, yeah, so that makes perfect sense.
0: And again, like you said,
1: you know, I would think more of that modern era than actually what they were doing. Yeah,
0: I, I believe it actually starts with, like, Leroy Brown, who was a large African-American worker in the early 80s in Georgia, coming yeah. out to that. But then you had Michael Hayes and the Freebirds and right. Jimmy Valiant and his song, whatever it was at the time. Right. Well, um, Son of a gypsy. Was... So, Hogan was coming out
1: to Eye of the Tiger because of his tie to the uh, Rocky Three movie. Yes. But that was, when, when was that? That was 83, right? Right. Okay. And Freebirds were before 83. Yeah, Freebirds were it? 81. Okay. So, you right. So, I mean, I guess if you look at it, because that got them, I know they got in trouble. Uh, at least Michael Hayes had said that in one of his stories I'd heard where. They were playing the music, and it might have been in Memphis or somewhere, and they were supposed to be the heels, but because they played the music, the crowd responded positively to them, so then they ended up getting...
0: Yeah, Lawler saw that, got jealous, so he instantly turned them and then turned him and Dundee heels so that they could be over. There was a big problem in Memphis and that Lawler wasn't going to let anybody get over more than he was right right but that's also because he didn't want anybody he almost stole the promotion he didn't want anybody else to steal the promotion sure So
1: what uh as far as intro music or entrance music is there a quintessential one for you that you like think somebody that comes out and you're just like ooh, i hear that song and i just think of that person is there somebody that really
0: it just stuck
1: flair with 2001 yeah I I
0: think yeah. I I agree with yeah, that. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's just that's it right. for me. Back when Ric Flair was good, he was so good. Now he looks like Skeletor and sure. makes me sad. I mean, it, he's a human and you know, he makes his mistakes and I'm sorry that it's all in a public forum, but I you know, I loved Ric Flair for so long, then read his book. I was so excited to read his book, but again, it's oh, he's a he's a person. Sure. Sure. And sometimes not a very smart one. So. Right.
1: Well, and it's almost one of the big disservices to wrestling, I think has been that homogenization or just like that, like that in-house creating
0: of music. They're like the, yes, the way but that's, it is uh, that's a necessary evil though. For uh, no, I agree.
1: Right. I mean, for a, a copyright purposes, we've talked about it in the past, it's like right? Any of that old footage, you can't air none of that. I mean, when, when road warriors came out to the ring to iron man, oh, um, so good. It was crazy. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, and that was just that like, wow, this is ridiculously intense. Yeah. Um, and it really drove home that point. Um, and now it's just, it's almost groan inducing the way you, again, not to right. get to the, not back in my day. No, no. But. but
0: I, I understand. Unfortunately, that's just the way the wrestling was able to use music that way because they were under the radar and there right. was, wasn't really any money in it. And all of a sudden people are like, Hey, wait a minute, you're using our product. It's like, oh, crap. right crap.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's also funny to see how many years that was able to happen or was yeah. able to occur before musicians and ASCAP or whatever Yeah, it was, especially actually, like bumper music and stuff yeah, like that, and too. and we're able to take advantage of that. And uh, <coughs> it, it, it really goes to show, too, um, there's a lot of things, for instance, not wrestling-related, but mm-hmm. still, like a lot of programming that came out from MTV in the 90s, mm-hmm. the music that they were using, they either had the license to only use it mm-hmm. on that television at that time, but like a lot of shows that have come out since – uh the, they used to do a comedy show called the state sure uh which is really funny but if you see it now if you were to buy the dvd or the blu-ray and watch it they've had to put generic music in in all the spots right and it really isn't as good because of the the, stu- the music just fits so well that they were using but clearly things are now that copywriting
0: so. yeah there was the same issue when like the first VHS editions of Beavis and Butthead came out. Yes, but it was just the cartoons, and you're like, eh, okay, right? You did get is... to sit and watch the videos Yeah, yeah, and, and that was and... the that was the whole draw there. And I wonder too. Uh, so, so entrance music. Yeah, started but, in like, the '80s, started to get big, like, and then right. as wrestling started to change, because you know when it first started out, only one or two people on the card would have entrance music, and that right. would make that memorable for them. Uh, there's stories of Bob Luce running shows at like wrestling Star Wars at the International Amphitheater. But everybody came out to that Migo disco version of Star, Star Wars. Wars. Really? That was the music that everybody had. That's funny. Like, okay.
1: Yeah. That, but that, I mean, I, it, I guess it makes sense uh, when you had it, to watch people coming out to the ring now. When you see it from those old AWA and uh-huh. what have you shows and you see them without any music. I think it's... There's a cool intensity to it. It's enjoyable, right? Um, and it is a neat way for the stars or the people that were on top to get over. i was always curious about like world championship wrestling, uh, or not world, <sighs> world class championship wrestling. Uh, it always seemed like they never showed anybody else walking to the ring except for the Von Erics or Kerry Von Erich coming mm-hmm. out to rush. Right, and it just really drove home that point. Like these are the stars. These guys exactly. Are the stars. exactly, and that was such a great. A great thing that really that was cool yeah really especially in
0: texas because that's all fritz just wanted to push his boys didn't right didn't want any of that and going what up. better way to do it than with a canadian prog rock band but uh carrie von Erich was a modern day warrior yeah that that's so right. that's he was a modern day warrior what kevin had stranglehold yeah <laughs> mike von Erich had tough enough right <laughs> that's uh, right
1: yeah not that one not so great
0: but. me uh what gino had bad to the bone yeah which was great for him. Absolutely a fit. Uh, Jimmy had sharp dressed man, Jimmy Garvin.
1: Yeah. Did uh, uh, Chris Adams just come out to like old, like some British.
0: I do not recall what he came out to. Yeah. I'd love it if it was the sweet. Yeah. When, yeah. That's, huh. Says the man wearing the shirt. Sorry. It's just, it's a local fad. Um, researching the suite i think i mentioned this and this does i will take this back around to wrestling like just because of when my formative years were 74 75 like when in my mind when i default to what a rock band looks like it does look like the glam era you know musicians yeah right you know flashy like that's just as a kid and then i was also pondering this the other day through a cigar like my default definition of cool falls somewhere in between Paul Stanley and Jimmy Valiant. Okay. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm not saying That's pretty that, good. I, yeah, I'm not saying that that person would actually be, you know, accepted in today's society, but sure. just, Hey, if you had to define cool, what would you come up with? I'd be like, well, cool would be like the Fonz be like, again, somewhere between Paul Stanley on stage and Jimmy Valiant. Right. Being able to get away with that. Now. Yeah. Oh,
1: daddy. Speaking of very. You couldn't good... wake me up if I was sleeping. <laughs> Speaking of varied levels of cool, uh question came in, uh, actually, someone, one of my friends instant messaged me. You this don't one have for us. any friends. That's true. Uh, just acquaintances. Yes. Lots and lots of acquaintances. <laughs> Well-wishers. Uh, the gimmick match, Okay you you as a person as we know you and people who have seen you and this person who uh a friend of mine that had sent me the message is familiar with you from years upon years <laughs> of wrestling and the characters and the people and sure. how you've been and all that and like what you're you're very no nonsense you're a very right, right right down the middle kind of person and um you know last time we talked about blood and like the necessity of blood in a match mm-hmm. this person now was curious about um gimmick matches like if you had to pick uh, some gimmick matches, which ones would you say are your favorite, which are the most ridiculous, and which are completely worthless? Those were the three categories that they'd give me. Your favorite, most ridiculous, and just a
0: like a waste of time. Okay. Uh, I feel like you're looking for an ABC answer. Or just, but I'm I'm just I'm, well, no, I'm building it up. I'm building it up Sure, Building the heat, baby. Okay, okay. There. A gimmick match exists because there's been some issue that's been set up between two or four or however many combatants. So a gimmick match should ostensibly make sense as to what has happened. Like the most the most common the most common example is the heel bails out on the comeback. Right. So then next time we set up a lumberjack match. So that the heel can't bail out of the comeback, but then something happens. The lumberjacks interfere. Something happens. We still need to contain the heel, but we have to prevent outside interference. So that's how you build up to the cage. Okay. Um, this is also seen with WrestleMania three, with Hercules Hernandez comes out with the chain around his neck, right? Beats up Billy Jack Haynes. That's what sets up their chain match because a chain has been used. Well, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. If you want to use a chain, let's have it part of the match. Let's right. join our hands together and blah, 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 blah. So that's what makes a gimmick match worth anything is the story that's being executed to build up to that. Right. Like, there, right. Should be, there should be a stepwise progression to get into it to get you emotionally involved as to why these people are. It should never match. just be
1: thrown out there.
0: Just here's this. It, there needs to be something. To right. The yeah, there, there needs to be uh, of course exceptions to every rule it could be thrown out there especially if one of the combatants is building to a story with somebody else which I think like Terry Funk had a TV match in a cage with some jobber to build up a cage match he was having with say Dusty Rhodes or okay. whatever you know some something that's pretty that build... neat I've never seen that yeah it's it's you know so it, it obviously everything can be done but it's how it's executed so that's why a gimmick match needs to exist sure um so I'm more into the build and execution of that story than the actual match. Because so we, the actual match can be anything. You could have a Mexican death match with a sombrero on the pole. But it has uh, to have meaning to what Right, right. Uh, like the coal miner's glove match um, out of the Pacific Northwest. Love it. There was a whole structure behind that match as to how it was set up. One, the coal miner's glove is you know used ostensibly to protect coal miner's hands. But it had to be an issue... To set it up in the Pacific Northwest, there's a great uh, documentary on YouTube called Savage that it, it, it explains okay. this whole thing. Where to set up the match, it was actually a formal, I have the, the coal miner's glove match. I have to throw it down and you have to pick it up to formally accept the match. Oh, really? So you can build around that. Like, I'm not going to pick it up. Or you trick somebody. Oh my God, he picked up the mat. He picked up the glove. Now the match is gone. And so that was simply a foreign object du jour on the pole that sure. you could use Whatever in the match, the you know, but the coal miners glove was built up, you know, that came out of, uh, I'm just just going to say out of the South where there were coal miners right. and people knew that you had to wear these things, you know, so it was building up that.
1: But that's great though. So you're saying there was actually a, uh, much like a duel, like the process of I'm bringing out the glove, I'm throwing it down. You need to pick the glove up to accept it. Yes. Wow. Cause I love it. I use the term coal miners glove probably once <laughs> a week sure. when just for, cause it's the most ridiculous out there statement. I mean, if I said to somebody that doesn't know anything about wrestling and I said, Texas death match, you can kind of envision in your head what a Texas death
0: match would look like. It, it, different rules. But you know, it's just, yeah. you know,
1: it's like, it is that, but if you say to someone like, how are we going to sell this? And I say coal miners glove match, they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Uh, and to that point, I think that that's always been for me, a source of great humor and enjoyment. Like, I think it's a great gimmick. I think it's kind of neat. It's a cool thing.
0: But again, that's something that would have come up, um, from the local populace of what, you know, that's right. how you would sell it to your local crowd, especially when you're in Hazard County, Kentucky, right. where people are working in the coal mines. They know what that is, so they know what damage that can do. Is
1: that the natural progression from, like, brass knuckles on a pole or some other said weapon on a pole?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you're you're creating your... Like the variation just becomes that? Right, right, like what Hitchcock would call your MacGuffin, the, yeah, reason, right. the reason for existing. It's like we have to put this object on a pole or somehow make it inaccessible. And then you can have your struggle to get that. And then the struggle once that gets introduced into the match. Right. Right. So like Kentucky coal mining area, you'd have your coal miners glove match in the, in Amarillo, you'd have your bunkhouse match because everybody knew all the cowboys were sleeping in a bunkhouse and you know, it's kind of who,
1: uh, can you remember who did that? There was someone on, uh, TBS that did the sitting around the fire that was telling the story. Nelson Royal. Was it Nelson Royal? Yes. Okay, yes. Nelson
0: Royal actually ran a western, uh, what is that called, a tack shop or whatever where you sell saddles and everything. And he would train people in his barn. So like all of all of those vignettes, all of the Midnight Rider vignettes, yeah. those, those were all shot at his barn. So, his and that farm. was great because
1: yeah. that was the thing that sold me on the bunkhouse. Right, and that Battle explained Royal. what it was. When I'm like, holy shit, man, this is the this is the shit. Like, this is, we are in deep here. These guys yeah. are boots and jeans and mm-hmm. the mud mm-hmm. and the blood and the beer, Blech. as Cash would say. Yeah, for sure. Like, really, um, that, again, another formative moment in wrestling uh-huh. for me was that, him sitting around the fire explaining what the bunkhouse exactly. stampede was. And just being like, oh yeah, I'm all in. Yeah, but
0: to be clear, the bunkhouse stampede was a dusty booking invention. Oh, absolutely. You know, but, so right. but that's where the but it bunkhouse was a great match came from. Then in the Pacific Northwest, you'd have the lumberjack match because that's where people knew, again, large quantity of men out in the wilderness and right. they'd get in a fight and everybody would gather around in a ring. A funny version of that is Bob Luce in Chicago talking about a human cage match. Which Ooh. is just a lumberjack match, okay? You know, because it's a human cage. Can I ask this? Uh, no.
1: The thank you, the um, the bunkhouse stampede or the bunkhouse battle royal, was it in a cage? The finals were. The finals were, and wasn't it like you beat everybody out of the cage and you were the last man in the cage? Yes. So you were just beating guys up, and then they had to find multiple ways for people
0: to get thrown up and over or out or the through door. the door. Yeah. Right. That seems very complicated. Well, it was all, again, who won the three bunkhouse stampedes? (laughs) Right.
1: No, it was Dusty. Right. But I'm just saying it just— Got to take that big boot That boot, the picture. Oh, Ah, where is that now?
0: Yeah, right? Ooh. well, they're not going to give that up. That would be—yeah,
1: the boot is a great, uh, great thing. But um, that—so I guess to me that goes to one of the more ridiculous gimmicks. Gimmick matches. Fair enough. The fact of, like, you're in a cage— and yeah, you got to get everybody out. You got to get
0: everybody out of the cage, which just seems to just lay down and just. So the, the best gimmick matches I always liked, uh, because of how the AWA would tease you with it and build it up. You got the cage match. Like once the cage was coming in, you knew shit was real. Right. Boom. Um, as far as the most goofy, right. Uh, my favorite example of that is in the sixties, Tony Bourne and I forget who it is, had a loser washes a donkey. Really? Which I think is great, you know, because yeah. he probably went out and called his opponent a dirty ass on a promo. Right. And suddenly that billed to now you have, you know. So I don't know the payoff. I only read about it. but Right. Which led to a rib that somebody tried to pull on me once where a promoter had his wife contact me and say, hey, so-and-so wants me to charge donkey rental on his credit card. <laughs> And they were kind of upset with me because I didn't blink. And I was like, are we going to, is somebody, I'll do the wash a donkey match, you know, and it's perfect. You have the donkey set up in a little pen outside, you charge people to take pictures with it and then you use it in the, you know, right. Hopefully it doesn't kick you or wow. Yeah. That's going to run amok, you know. But there were also like loser eats dog food matches where they'd use spam or, you know, hopefully use spam or whatever, you know, you you always wanted to keep an eye on your gimmick there. But these were all again, Memphis was very big for stipulation matches, but they would all have a storyline reason that brought you to it. Right. So a lot of times a gimmick match wouldn't be that different from a regular match and that you would have your match. And you would tease the use of said gimmick in right. order to build up to whatever finish you were going to do with it.
1: Was the, uh, is it the Tupelo concession brawl? Yeah. Was that <gasps> impromptu, which led to a rematch, which is just an actual concession brawl? Or was it, I mean, I, I assume they, they at some point they realized they were going to head out there, but it wasn't part, it was just like a anything goes match that ended up being the concession no, brawl, right? Uh,
0: the concession brawl actually happened after the match. Oh, okay. The original Tupelo concession brawl uh, between the Blonde Bombers and Dundee and Lawler was an angle that they came up with, like over the course of a week, in order to try and jumpstart the territory through the summer. Okay, and that was actually filmed. If you look at the tape. What they do with that is they show whatever match happens, and then the cameras go dark. Yeah. And then you hear Lance Russell say, hey, uh, Mike, get over here. They got a hell of a match going on. And then they pull the camera around and film the con- the fight that's going on in the concession. Oh, gotcha. So that wasn't actually a match. That was actually a post-match. Sure. Or... What's tastelessly called the afterbirth. Yeah, for, right. That was actually the afterbirth of whatever had happened in the formal match. So that wasn't a, we're going to beat on each other here until that was just an angle that took right. off. Okay. And then they tried to recreate it. And then obviously everybody tried to jump on it saying, oh, we're going to have a concession stand match, you know, right, which is right. just, you know, a garbage match or sure, whatever. Sure. Yeah, I always thought, um, I didn't know how chicken or the egg. Right
1: on that one I wasn't sure which no,
0: it was just something uh a, a lot of people had left the promotion and they needed to it's in lawler it's in Dundee's book and okay. Dutch Mantel talks about it too where they had to think of something to jump start the territory sure sure, yeah, thats um there were so many uh different
1: things like that yeah. that I can see how you know some work better than others, but
0: yeah, well, Memphis was very big for. Memphis was big, and I think Portland was also big for stipulation matches, but they weren't necessarily all codified. They were just more of a because of a result of a, we're going to have match B. Sure, you know. Sure.
1: So this uh, this is a question I have for you. Okay. We'll we'll wrap. This will be the last one. I think we'll wrap up for this session. Nah, we got another one. Uh, We got another hour to go. Yeah. Um, Wrestling wise, since this is a podcast Uh about wrestling. sometimes when it's not about the brady bunch
0: um so good if
1: think about 1980s 70s late you know late 70s early 80s and and even i guess mid sure. 80s okay think about that time and there are wrestlers, wrestlers come and go we know that we get it and I'm, I'm getting somewhere with this but we know all the names we know all the big names we know the names where you go oh yeah this guy <coughs> are there any wrestlers that you have a soft spot for that might not have been that uh that name or that someone that comes out and i'll give you an example just to kind of lead the way like i am a huge and i consider this kind of obscure two people or two things one savannah jack do you remember savannah jack sure UWF. uwf right absolutely UWF tv champ I believe. yes thought he was great like okay always awesome and I was a huge New Breed fan. Yes. New Breed. Yes. Okay. Two things that I kind of feel lost to They're the They're from the ages. year 2001
0: because they've been partying like it's 1999, 1999 for right.
1: three years. Huge New Breed fan, huge Savannah Jack fan. Yes. Are there any guys like that for you that just like, and I say guilty pleasure, but some guys were just like, man, I always thought this guy was great. Deserved a better push. Something bad happened. Whatever it was. Something that, someone that you just kind of have that soft spot for.
0: Uh I don't know if this answers your question, but I love to tell people when I first saw the Midnight Rockers, I thought that Marty Janetti was the money. Really? Yeah. Really. Did not like Shawn Michaels. Wow. Still have arguments about him. I mean, I get he was an influential performer to an entire generation of, right. of workers and everything, but just I thought Marty Janetti was the money back then, which That's is crazy. Which is why I don't book.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: good yeah. point yeah very
1: good point because i just think uh, that there's a lot of guys like i mean just throwing out names ridiculous names like uh, angel of death i always thought was dave one sheldon that, yeah yeah sc- like scared me i don't know why uh, i bald. i don't think i saw too much I mean, He was just a big bald guy yeah like i just i just felt master. like he was there kind of in yeah uh you know he did some stuff for world class um another one that was always perplexing me uh that i loved when i saw him spike huber sure I I, like know nothing about the guy whatsoever.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, know nothing about it. Okay. Well, here's a story about Spike Huber. Great. Uh, He was Dick the Bruiser's son-in-law. Oh, really? For a long time.
1: What? What for? Like real?
0: Yes. Okay. Until he got divorced from Michelle Huber, and then he was blackballed. Really? Because Dick the Bruiser called his friends and didn't want. And was just like he's didn't want anybody to use him. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So he was Dick the Bruiser's son-in-law. So as I understand it, uh Spike Huber and I believe it was Michelle Afflis got divorced. Okay. She went on, married, and divorced two other guys, and then later the three of them got together in a tag team called the Husbands. <laughs> which I forget the the what exactly happens, but at the end of one match. Spike Huber picks up Michelle Atlas throws her over his shoulder, walks to the back, and they wind up getting married again. And I believe they're still married today. No shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he was Dick the Bruiser's son-in-law. Because what so was that, that well, that's why he was always in the St. Louis stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. Because much Nick loved Dick the Bruiser, so. Um, you know, we always used him there. He's very capable. Right. Right. And that's how he got in, you know, did his little deal down in Memphis. Yeah. But then once he fell out with Dick, the bruiser, like he tried to block his career.
1: Wow. See, that's, yeah, I would not, but another one, it's just one of those guys that I remember as a kid, uh, that was one of my, ooh, Spike Huber's awesome. Savannah Jack,
0: how cool. Yeah, I don't really have anybody left over like that from that period because everybody I would have been interested in I've already dug into. So sure, now so it is you know, m- right. I am more into guilty pleasures like big money Hank James. Explain. Oh. Yeah. Big, big pimp guy in uh, Detroit. Okay. Rumored to be Boba Brazil's brother. Okay. Just, Just a horrible worker, but... Big money, Hank James. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool name. Uh, cool name. Wore like the weird K and H tights, but it was the real strange pattern and horrible punches. Just yeah, everything about him is horrible. But so I just decided I like big Did money. Did he Hank work for Sheik? Big yes. Time? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Worked for Sheik. From what I understand, also worked in Amarillo, but worked in street clothes because he was so bad they didn't want him to put on wrestling gear. <laughs> That's. That's big, pretty big money hank james yeah not so much with the big money no well we uh uh some unheralded wrestlers that i think deserve more attention are chris colt okay um just a phenomenal one of these guys that if wrestling wasn't around you don't know what he would do but uh oh god how can i go into chris colt just just an, an amazing worker um always high or drunk yeah just like would try and dry up and promoters would tell him no we need you messed up because you can't work you can't work unless yeah you're <laughs> sauced so yeah just and then uh yeah, i don't want to get into too much of it was um was homosexual uh rumored to after after leaving wrestling Went on and made a world in the world, made a living in the world of male porn and nobody knows what happened to him, but they assume he died of AIDS related complex really? at some point in the nineties.
1: So how do you, I mean, how do you find out about this guy?
0: Uh, a lot of people talking about him. He spent okay. some time in the, uh, Hell's Angels with Don Fargo after the one guy got shot, which we should do a story yeah, on sometime. Sure. Uh, but then he's also very featured in the Dean Silverstone's book, uh, I Ain't No Pig Farmer. Okay. Which is a book about running an independent that really gained some traction in the Seattle, Washington area. Okay. So he fought with uh Gene Kaniski and with Don Owen for trying to run that area because they both claimed it was theirs, but yeah. they never ran there. So he basically put up an indie, and there's just there's lots of stories about Chris Colt there, and I'll just Leave it. There. Read, read the book. Yeah, right. Available no, from that's Crowbar awesome. Press.
1: But that's what I'm saying. Like that's the kind of stuff. Buy that, everything uh, from Crowbar Press. Absolutely. I was just on their site the other day looking for some yeah. stuff. So, uh, yeah, a, a, a fantastic stuff. Uh, there. Also,
0: very uh, for Dean Silverstone's book. One of the stories I love in there is after he got out of wrestling, he opened one of the first uh, like uh, record inventory stores. Oh, really? Like, in that area, and there's a great story how. Because uh, like, he had a lot of, like, rare 45s, but numerous counts. Uh, Freddie Fender was a singer in the 70s, yeah. was playing in that area. And before the store opened, he saw Freddie Fender standing outside of his, his store. So he runs and he opens the front door and says, Mr. Huertas, because... Uh, uh, Freddie Fender's real name was Baldemar Huertas okay. Mr. Huertas please come in and I will play Holy One for you because it was like his first signal that he recorded on this obscure Texas label wow. and he says that Freddie Fender turns around to him and just looks him up and down and says amigo who are you so he brings him in, plays, you know, he had like three copies of the 45, yeah. plays it for him and gives it to him and Freddie Fender later from the the show sends over a stack of autographed pictures and just says, "Hey, sell these or do whatever you can with them. Thank you very much." that's cool yeah so i mean what a it great was just, story yeah non-wrestling story but still very just yeah i love being able to ask somebody a question that just throws them out of their stride and just who why why do you know that right yeah, right so yeah that
1: is very cool do you have uh before we wrap it up though i gotta ask because you, you did light up a little bit
0: thoughts on the new breed oh i love the new breed they were great and um at the time I had stripes carved into the side of my head. Of course, a la Sean Royal, right? Because that's what they did. And I believe it was something along the lines of, I told my sister if our football game won three more times, I was going to get a haircut like Chris Champion. Really? Which was the weird reverse mohawk Ah, and everything. But then my high school went on like a four-year losing streak, (laughs) so I never had to worry about cutting my hair. That's sad. But I really liked the new breed. Now, going back and watching them, you can see how they're kind of... uh, uh stiff and not as smooth yeah. as they should be because they were both relatively new at the right, time right but at the time it was like oh these guys are great and they came out to the bc, BC boys, boys it was, uh, it was and then, hot stuff and then they it? got in the car wreck so they had the the cast with the cybernetic panel on it yeah but again like they were from the year 2001 dusty Rhodes was president right and they'd been partying like it was 1999 for three years yes like okay
1: it was one of those i remember seeing the gimmick and thinking to myself like this is so fucked up it might just work yes like this might just work and then yeah that, yeah and then they stuff. had the
0: problems with the car wreck and i believe uh sean royal like fell out of the business yeah, or something like, like that yeah, kind of lost his way wanted, wanted to get a job yeah. yeah and then chris champion was still around for several years until i believe he got into some uh, legal trouble. I've right. heard he, heard he, horrible stories about that.
1: Yeah, and he did Yoshi Kwan.
0: Yes, which I liked Yoshi Kwan especially for the weird um, uh, nerve hold yeah. that he ended with, where you had to actually drive the person's shoulder into your hand yeah. to get the proper penetration. Yeah,
1: it was really cool. And I, I mean, he had the um, pointed nails and everything uh-huh, like that. Uh-huh. It was yeah, it was super slick. So, so on that note, Derek, thank you uh, again for answering some of these uh, listener and uh, questions and viewer mail, so to speak. Um, We'll do it again down the road. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up. We were just talking about things uh, before the podcast, like what the hell are we going to do next? <laughs> yes. But no, but we really do, guys. And as always, we appreciate everybody who listens, uh, interacts with us. We love hearing from people. Uh, any questions, any show topics, anything at all you would like to hear, by all means, please get in touch with us. Challenge
0: uh, us on anything you've heard, please. Yeah,
1: please do. Please. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, anytime someone can prove Derek wrong, that uh, makes me smile. Uh,
0: we do. We, I have found some ha-ha, I have found some errors in our past episodes. Yeah, you know what? Can we bring me. one up real quick? Uh, which one? Go well, ahead.
1: Well, uh, I think we botched the finish on the dusty... Um, flare match from the Starcade episode. Oh, that's not the one I was thinking of, but go ahead. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Dusty rolls him up in a small package. I thought there was the crossbody. I thought the crossbody was a different match. We might uh, have to go right. back and look. Fair enough. It's a schoolboy school or a small package? It's a small, po- small package. Kyle says small package. Yes. So
0: He's as- talking about you. Yeah, uh,
1: of course. Don't go there. Okay. Was it Chris Colt? yes yes Don't give me your chris colt oh. uh but uh yes so i picked up on that one the other day but yes it was okay. actually it was a the a small package
0: there's that one and then mine was i thought that hacksaw duggan was brought out of retirement for the sam Muchnick retirement show or brought back from being fired for the sam Muchnick retirement yes. show he was actually brought out of re- uh suspension for the paul bosch retirement show. there you go so so we sorry do-
1: listen we make mistakes We've never been to a studio wrestling show. Give us a break.
0: Uh, Someday.
1: But yes, clearly there are corrections and omissions and such, and there's only so much we
0: can do. But we do want to point out the fluid nature of professional wrestling. This was a hidden business, and there wasn't a written record of this until relatively recently. So you're getting stories years after they happened by people that are not known for telling the truth and have taken a lot of drugs and right. headshots. Exactly. So, sorry, I mean not to dress it up there. And I will this say This is the longest outro ever.
1: I know. It and I, I'm gonna put it out there. Let us know. If anyone's interested, I will make us and distribute cigars and conversations, c- cigars and conversations T shirts that say there was a history and, and there is a, a past. I will do it. Just start Letting me know your size yes, and how please. many you want. And then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put it in order and ship it. out. I can out. already
0: tell you right now, no smalls or mediums. Yeah,
1: right. Exactly. Exactly. And no girl cuts. Right? Why not? Well, I mean.
0: No, no, please. Let's have the girl cuts. I would Is love it, for girls. Please, girl please yeah, post the picture. I want to see it. All right.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks again. And uh, as you know from what we just said, you have been listening to Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire. We will be back soon. And we want to thank everybody for listening. We are heard exclusively at one gimmickworld.com and we will talk soon.